world is is full of those stories of people working their entire life, getting their pension or getting, you know, that, that, that golden watch and then dying, you know, less than a couple years later. I mean, it happens all the time. That's why, you know, this, this for me was the greatest vocation I could ever have because it was just reaffirming all the time. Hey dude, you right? Go home, tuck your kids in, be at their school play, go coach everything you can coach. That's the good stuff. And people would literally, they would literally sitting in the arrangement room with them. They would look at me and go, you got young kids, right? I mean, get out of here, go do it. I mean, they're small once and it's the, it was the best advice, best vocation forever for me really was. Hey everybody, welcome to the Mental Purpose Podcast. I'm going to do the fastest intro yet. 30 seconds, you ready? My guest today is Chris Myers. We're going to talk about why death is the greatest teacher of life, right? Death is the greatest teacher about life. That's it. That's all you need to know. Stay with this thing. I had a technical difficulty at the end. There is gold all the way through. Remember, if you need us, join the Mental Purpose community on Facebook. Reach out to us at ianlobos.com. We're happy to help. We got tons of free stuff. You're going to love this episode. Here you go. All right, Chris, welcome, my friend. Thank you for having me. It's been nice. Yeah, to yeah. It's, uh, it, we're going to have some fun today, and uh, I might cry today. It depends on what you say. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of my MO anyway, so good. <laughs> Two men Yeah, it's, listen, it's good content. Regardless, it's good content, and, and people will learn from whatever we dig into. So let's just... Amen, amen. Let's get started with your background. You know, and yeah. like we talked about before I, before I hit record, like the audience wants to know that they're not alone in their failures, in their attempts at success, and then their failures. And so go go way back. Just give us, you know, a brief synopsis of your story and then just include some of the big failures yeah. and how you work through those. And then we'll get, we'll really dig in. Yeah. I mean, I'm a kid that grew up in suburban New York, believe it or not, in a town called Pleasantville, nice. New York, 35 miles north of New York City. Yankee fans, sorry, I see the Dodger hat. Um, uh, former uh, Brooklyn Dodgers, yeah. by the way. Um, and uh, grew up wonderful mom and dad, really sort of, uh, again, the uh, idyllic childhood in a suburban uh, middle class upbringing. Uh, went to law school, went to Brandeis, uh, spent a year in Purdue, Indiana, had a good cross section of, of living uh, on, the, on the East Coast. Um, graduated from law school and said, man, I don't think I could be a lawyer, made a low budget. Why not? What's that? I didn't want to solve people's problems all my whole life. Um, and I, I just, I was, I got a master's in environmental law at, at Vermont law, law school and the high paying jobs were all on the polluting yeah. side. I had worked in the New York state Superfund branch, uh, downtown Manhattan and uh, I quickly found out that uh, if you want to make the money uh, and not live on $30,000 in New York or yeah. try to, uh, you need to work for Exxon or, or someone big. So um, I was a little bit dissuaded off the bat. And uh, lo and behold, I made a, believe it or not, a low budget film in New York City, got into the Angelica, the New York Film Festival, got flown to Venice. I thought I was dialed in for Sundance and I didn't end up getting into Sundance. Right. Um, it was, this was a great, uh, crushing defeat. Um, as an independent filmmaker, that's sort of the granddaddy of them all. And I was written up in variety, uh, you know, as the film to watch from this film festival. And I kind of thought I was yeah. a shoe in for Sundance. Right. And then when they made the announcement, um, I was crestfallen. And so, uh, good failure there. I didn't stop on that failure. I, I knew that I didn't want to be an attorney at that point, despite taking my bar and passing my bar in New York. Side story, they told me I failed. I received a letter that I hmm. failed. This is a true story. New York State Bar gave me a letter, said I failed. My mother, ever the champion for her youngest, said, Chris, you studied your ass off. You need to go up and you need to appeal. I said, mom, are you <laughs> kidding me? You don't appeal a bar exam. She said, Chris, there's a process in place. Go do it. I took her advice. I went up and I, I literally, they put you in a side room. You're allowed to open up your exam. 
and someone had graded the essay portion of my exam I as a seven and my score was a one. Oh. So I, I, it was just the way they wrote the seven, right? Yeah, We've yeah. all done it. It looks like a one. And I appealed it and I won. Thanks, mom. Not. And so I credit my mother with that. So that's a great story. You know what's interesting? Again, mom's coming. I think we all, or most of us have stories like where our mom really went to bat for us. I know my mom has. And and you're like, is that just being like an overbearing mother who doesn't want to see their son fail? Or is or does is there some validity here? I mean I I think they have a tuition, yeah. right? I mean, it's a woman's tuition or a mom's tuition, intuition. I think they truly have that. And I think you know, our moms know us. Like, I don't know if you have children, yeah. but when I parent, my children are so yeah. different. That was the biggest eye-opening thing. And I think our parents, especially our moms, I'm coming from a generation where dad went to work and mom sure. stayed home with us. They kind of, they know yeah. you, right? They know every fiber of who you are. And she did, you know, I was, I would say a solid B student, but she saw that I, you know, I was tanking for, I would really, really studying for that thing. And I think she just believed in you. And, it, you know, that's what makes yeah. moms great, at least my mom. So after that, I made a low-budget film in New York. I didn't get in Sundance, loaded my car up and drove to L.A. and began an 11-year odyssey um, in Los Angeles, truly doing what many of us children who have been told where <laughs> go follow your dreams, you know, <laughs> where dreams are made and crushed. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I ended up working, got a, had a friend who worked for Herb Ritz, who was like the foremost fashion photographer back in the day, Cindy Crawford, Elena P- Pastova, all these famous models. And I would drive to the Chateau Marmont, pick up Helena Christensen and drive her to the set. That was nice. my job. I was an attorney in New York state. And yet I knew I didn't want to do that. So that was my job. And I was a, basically a gopher on these sets, but it was you, awesome. This is because, right yeah. out of college, right out of law school. This is in Los yeah, right out of law school. So you're young. Yeah. Yeah. This is right out after passing my bar and making this film. And so I was in Los Angeles doing this and, you know, you would get paid pretty good for just a short stint. And then I would yeah. go right. And I was vigilant. I was vigilant about the writing. I did not, I was a little bit older, so I wasn't going into Los Angeles nightclubbing yeah. every night and partying on the weekends. I was I was very, very vigilant about writing. And I thought that was, you know, probably a turning point for me. Again, being a little bit more mature, probably around 32 now. And uh, I took it as a, as a job. And slowly but surely, I got a manager, got an agent, started uh, sending out spec scripts, which is a whole world of frustration <laughs> and just absolute rejection, abject rejection. And uh, over those 11 years, uh, met a woman on a blind date and had a son. And this, my son, my firstborn was really the turning point in yeah. my life because um, when I saw, brought him home and I was essentially an un, uh, unemployed screenwriter with my wife working in Westwood, and looking at this child and, and that was, that was the turning point for me. It was like, dude, you know, Peter Pan long yeah. enough, it's time to show this little man and, and make him proud of you. And, and I really attribute my, my first son. And again, uh, for that, that turning point. And lo and behold, um, you know, I could have gone back to New York into my father's work, which he was a civil engineer consultant or become a lawyer. And we didn't want to do that. We, we kind of wanted to be in California. And my wife's family was from up north. Had a friend in the family who had always been saying, funeral homes are a very <laughs> solid business, Chris. And I'm a mortician, I know. So I went into business with this guy. I, it never happens. Funeral homes don't uh, end up in bankruptcy. We found one. Lo and behold, the stars were aligning and bought it, turned it around. And that was the genesis of it. Got it. So, so let's go back because... I want to really dig into those 20 things you yeah. learned from being a funeral homeowner. And it's weird because in your, on your one sheet, it says funeral homeowner. And I'm like, funeral homeowner. What does a homeowner have to do with fu-? like, anyway, it needs, it needs a space in there. They right. tricked me. So I want to go back for a second because yeah. there are people that are going to listen to this and say, all right, Chris, I get it. Your whole world shifted when you had a kid. Can your world shift without a kid? Like, what is that? What is that? Determining? Absolutely. Abs- I mean, I, I get 
I, I don't know if your world can shift without, I would sure. imagine that it can, but I, certainly when I didn't have children as a young man, my world was shifting. I think it was because I attribute it to my father. And again, my father was a hardworking man, you know, not a nine to five or he was like a nine yeah. to eighter. Uh, worked as a civil engineer consultant, which is really uh, pretty dry work. But the the uniqueness of my father is that when he came home from work, there was so much joy in describing his workday to us at sitting around the table. And we always sat at a dinner table and um, I could see the joy in his face. And then as a sophomore in high school, he took off on his own and built a, a civil engineer business out of our house. So we would have dinner at night and these people were coming in moonlighting and mom was making meals for everyone. And they were all working in the back by the fireplace. You know, it was insane. So that did two things. It showed me my dad had a big set of cojones. Right. And he was like going out on his own. He was not a young man at that point. And secondly, it ignited that entrepreneurial spirit. I believe I really I saw everything at ground level from their discussion of coming home and saying, hey, we think we're, dad's going to leave his job. And I'm like, what are you talking about? We got a beautiful company car. We're making we have a beautiful home. And, you know, they were like, calm right. down, Junior. We're going <laughs> to. How old were you then? You know, I was 15 okay. at the time. So it was very, very. Uh, for me, it was really enlightening because I was at a pivotal yeah. time in my life. Right. Just kind of figuring out my probably my freshman, sophomore year in high school. Girls starting to come on board, me starting to feel a little bit my own in sports. And um, so it was a really pivotal time. But I do remember coming home every night and seeing these people who had worked nine to fives and then saw something in my father besides a paycheck, I'm sure, uh, and said, wow, I'm going to go to that guy's house and help him build. It was interesting. It was insane. My dad did that when I was four years old. And I I remember Uh, that day. And that's, I mean, it's a long time ago, right? And, and it's, it's 36 years ago. I still remember how I felt. And I remember the difference between my dad's energy and my mom's energy. So to give my mom credit, my mom was laying in our brand new house that they technically couldn't afford in this new and up and coming area of Baltimore County. And my dad just said, um, I quit my job today. And now let me give you a context. My mom is laying in a full body cast in the living room in a hospital bed because of a botched spinal fusion. So she can't move. Oh. So the energy, the fear, I felt that very early on. And my dad's confidence was yeah. really unwavering. And like, obviously I picked up on that energy and I, and I adopted some of that fear of like financial fear, things like that. And then I just saw my dad said, if I don't do it now, I'll never do it. And I believe I can, I believe oh, I can make this work. And it was just so clear, how, clear. How Super cool clear. is that? Right. I mean, and that's a great thing to talk about. I think you talk, you say you want to talk yeah. about failures. Your audience wants to hear that, that, that financial fear that you have that at 20, you have it at 30, you have it at 40. I've had it at 50. Yeah. It, it never goes away. You know, what goes there's an extra zero at the end of your equation every time. Right. You know, I'm serious. That's what it happens. It never goes away. And for me, that's the hunger, right? That's why I'm on that habit trail. Yeah. That's why my dad always said, look it, you're going to be working hard your whole life. You might as well. Well, That's that's true. And that's a, that's a, that's a, a, a a phenomenal line that I'm going to, I'm going to cut. Like Jim Carrey has a line in his speech to Maharishi university that says like, why live a life doing something that you hate when you could take a chance at doing something that you love? And it like, it made me emotional because I watched my family. Like at that moment, you don't think that this is a massive turning point in your family's generational history. Yet what he was doing was saying to me, if you don't test yourself and push yourself and take chances on yourself, you'll never know. And the lesson I learned that day was not about taking chances. It was about believing in yourself. That's what I learned. No, I didn't realize that at four years old. Yeah. I realized that later on. Right, right. But that was right. And I think the, the thing that uh, our generation should know is, right, that the failures are the good stuff. The failures are your bricks, right? Because you're ultimately building this house. And if you're not failing, 
that means you're not trying and everyone fails. Jim Carrey's story is so freaking yep. unique. I mean, he goes back to like cleaning with his parents because they had no money in it. Like, a, right. They were in a cleaning service and he wrote himself that check. That's the famous story also. So he knows he's been there. But those failures are your bricks that are building your house. And each one of those failures, the smart thing is you got to learn from each one, right? You can't be, otherwise it's the insanity, you know, doing the same thing over and again, expecting a different result, right? We've all heard that line too. But the failures, and I tell my sons, please fail, because then I know you're working. You're working towards sure. something. You'll learn. Why, you know, You'll why, learn why are people so afraid of failure? Like, it is such a great thing. Yet when you internalize it, that's when it becomes dangerous. Like I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm a loser. I'm a failure. Like failure is not right. And that's why mental illness yeah, is totally. a problem. And then there's, the, and then there's, right? the, there's the, there's like the next ring out of the, of the giant, you know, um, like web that you get into the next ring out is well, I'm failing because I'm comparing myself to this person. Yet if I didn't compare, if you don't compare to that person, your failure is a temporary hit that you just keep moving from. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, for me, you, you, you talk right there. That was suburban <laughs> life, right? We always compare ourselves with the Joneses. We've heard that. And the look at, Hey, I, are we allowed to swear on this? The Joneses don't fucking okay. exist yeah. by the way. Okay. Don't compare yourself to the Joneses because they don't exist. And if they do, they're so twisted in their own world. You want no part of that. That's the key. Um, you know, I, I'm in suburban, I won't say where I am, but that we're all ready for college, right? And in our world, you go to this college advisor and they help you write essays. And I said to my wife, I ain't paying 10, 15 grand for someone to do that. You and me can do this yeah. with our son. And she's like, really? We want to take this on? I was like, yeah, we do. And you know what? He got into college, cool. believe it or not. Cool. Yeah. Trust me, there's plenty of colleges that want your copy. Yeah, that's yeah. right. You know, what's what's interesting is like, that's another topic we could dive into and I don't want to because it goes deep. Like yeah, the, 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 the college, you know, bubble and the mania. Yeah, the mania and then and then how, you know, the expense of it. And I got out of college. I remember my first two years in college, I would call my dad every other day. I'm like, dad, this isn't for me. I want to come home. I I just want to work with you. I don't want to be here. I don't like this. And my dad would go, look, man, I'm paying for it. So be grateful, one, and which I was. And two, society says you have to have this piece of paper. Unfortunately, I didn't make up the rules, son. But society says you got to have this piece of paper, which puts you on another level. That's it. That's literally it. Just right. play the rules of the game. You know, play just the play game. the game. And then, and then it was like, Oh, but you know, and my dad, like he, he took the pressure off me and he said, look, man, I'm not expecting straight A's. Do I believe that you could get them? Yes. Do I believe that you want to get them? No. And I don't want you to go get them. I want you to have decent grades and I want you to have a great experience. I'm not paying for your grades because your grades yeah. don't mean shit. You're an entrepreneur. They don't mean anything. Right. No one right. gives a shit about your grades. Right. In fact, I'm, I'm 39 right. and a half years old and I have never written a resume I don't have a resume. I don't care. And so That's he awesome. said, like, I am not paying for grades. I am paying for you to learn about life. And in there are some classes. Right. Yet when you go back to the dorm room, that's also a class that the college doesn't endorse. You're learning shit at every moment. And he started teaching me about leadership and, and like first leading myself, which I think is college kids. We're trying to figure out who the hell we are and what are, what we're doing in this world. And like, do I, do I, do I need to be a management studies accounting degree major thing? Or can I just go for the communications thing just to get this piece of paper? And you're figuring all that stuff out yet. So many kids are pushed into this, like you got to get good grades so you can get that good job and just fall into that treadmill, right? Which, which leads into like the treadmill of, of life. And then you see the last, you see the last effect, which is the treadmill leads right to the yeah. grave. Unfortunately, and, yeah. and a lot of people never, yeah. they never even look around. They just stay eyes forward. They never even look around. Yeah. And, and, the, and I, again, that was part of the impetus to tell, share people's stories of that, uh, because there are, the world is, is full of those yeah. stories of people working their entire yeah. life, 
getting their pension or getting, you know, that, that, that golden watch and then yeah. dying, you know, less than a couple years later. I mean, it happens sure. all the time. That's why, you know, this, this for me was the greatest vocation I could ever have because it was just reaffirming fucking reality time. check. Hey dude. Yeah. Right. Go home, tuck your kids in, be at their school play, go coach everything you can coach. That's the good stuff. And people would literally, they would literally sitting in the arrangement room with them. They would look at me and go, you got young kids, right? I mean, yeah. get out of here. Go do it. I mean, they're small once and it's the, it was the best advice, best vocation forever. For me. You know what I really think was. about is I used to sell real estate in Baltimore and our average price points were like, let's say between 250 and 400,000, which we're, 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 you're in an undisclosed location right now in, in the witness protection program. We'll pretend that <laughs> I'm in LA and, uh, and I'm not a Dodger fan. I just like this yeah. logo. I think it's really cool. And, um, okay. and so I, I, when I was selling real estate in Baltimore, I remember like, I would get really emotional with older people who like, I remember this guy was in his nineties and he was just getting taken care of by nurses and his daughters called me to come sell the house and they're moving him in with them. And I'm like sitting there with him one day and he was pretty lucid. Like he was pretty aware. And he said, uh, and I said, you know, so what did you do as a profession? And he said, uh, I worked in this factory. And I said, interesting. And he said, um, you know, I've been retired for like, I don't know, 35 years or something crazy. And I said, well, what did you do in your retirement? And he goes, you're looking at it. And I felt, I felt his pain. Like every day was about something external. Like, oh, I think my daughters are going to come over with the grandkids today. And that makes my day. Or, or, or there's a program on TV I'm going to watch. And, and I, and I, I really felt empathy for the first time at a, at a much deeper level than I ever had. And the guy, the guy died like two weeks after settlement. And that was early on. And I remember there's another guy that really shifted how I thought about life. And I remember we got to the day of settlement and I went up to his house and he, nothing was packed, like a whole house, nothing's packed. And this guy is in tears on the living room floor looking at his wedding album and um, shit, I'm going to try not to choke myself up. <laughs> um, and I walked in, I was like, uh, and I won't say his name. I said, Are, everything okay? You know, we're going to settlement in like two hours. There's, there's nothing packed. And he's like, I'm sorry, man. I know I got to move. I just, this is my wife and I built this house together and she left too early. And like, she, obviously she had died. And like, I sat there for two hours. And when the, when the buyers came, they were like, what the fuck? And I said, guys, yeah, this is on me. Like, don't blame him. Don't sue yeah. him. If you're going to do something, right. do it to me. Like, I can't right. push this guy today. I'm, I'm sorry. Like I can't. And they were yeah. like, well, what are we supposed to do? And, and, no, and this guy came out and he said, look, I'll pay for your hotel. I'll pay for your moving expenses. I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. I'm so sorry. And I just sat there with him for another yeah. couple hours. And we, we just like, he explained things to me about life that I'd never heard in that perspective. And it, and it scared me yeah. that my life was being wasted. It was 2015. I'd been in real estate for three years. And I, 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 I was starting to think like, this isn't it. I am not happy. The money has me trapped. I was making insane money and I'm, I'm the provider and I'm the hero and everything's great. Cause I'm getting all these awards yet. Like, look what this guy's going through because his wife didn't even have a chance to live her life as long as she thought she would. So like, what am I doing with my yeah. fucking life here? And that's why I kept saying, is this it? Yeah. Is this really it? Is this all there is selling some houses in this city and living in that house and like wearing a tie that I don't like. And, and, and that really opened my eyes yet. It, it was about like, whenever the end is, will I actually say I'm good? Like check that box. Like I'm good. And that, that scared the shit out of me. And I started, I changed my trajectory into obviously what I do today. And oh man, I mean that, thank God you had that, that, that jettison, that, that, that turning point, because I think I was very lucky also to have that similar thing. My grandfather was my best friend in life and he lost his wife, my grandmother at 60 years old. And this is a guy, immigrant, German immigrant, delivered uh, eggs and cheese up and down the streets of New York City, Harlem to the, the Bowery mm -hmm. uh, for his entire life, six days a week, about 12 hour days. 
got sent over to America as payola for money that went to the sawmill in Germany and uh, ended up just starting a life here and had my mom, but he lost her early. So he was what, 62 and had worked his ass off in the unair conditioned truck in New York City. And then his wife dies and he didn't know how to boil an egg. Interesting. And so what do you do? I mean, and so I had a similar experience and, but I was lucky because he's my grandfather and we, you know, we were playing sports all our life, me and my brothers, and he would come to every game. And I mean, he would come to open of a paper bag. He was at everything. And we had that relationship, that one-on-one, and I was so fortunate. Um, And it taught me so much. It taught me, you, you said it best. If we could teach our children a couple of things, kindness and empathy, good God, the, what, a, what a world we live in. I mean, those two things alone will carry us because if you can put yourself, especially whether you're in the funeral business or selling homes and you could put yourself in that person's, yeah. you know, shoes for one day, right? Just mm-hmm. one day. It impacted. Look at what it did for your oh, life. I'm still very it close with them. You in so yeah, many I'm still ways. very close with them. They right. send my they send my kids birthday cards like that that day. And there's somebody listening that need, really needs to hear this. Like when you are really there for somebody in their world, it's really like mm-hmm. over here with them, right? When you're ri- there, like nothing else fucking matters at that moment. They feel that and they know that it's real and it's authentic. And you can actually change somebody's life. You can change their trajectory of how they think about humanity. And change your own. And your own. Yeah, totally. totally. And change your own. What do you think about change your own. something I, I process is like one of the biggest reasons why I, I started podcasting, I started my coaching business, and I started to move myself out of real estate or at least my identity out of real estate was because one of my coaches once said to me, I said, dude, why do I hate this so much? Like, shouldn't I just be grateful and happy and appreciative that I – that I've achieved this and that I have this level of success. And he was like, no, it's because you know, you're replaceable. Like if you died tomorrow and he gave me an exercise and I audience, I want you to listen to this. He said, I want you to go to your broker right now and don't say, don't say anything about yourself. Just say, if an agent dies tomorrow and they have like three open transactions that are going to settlement, what happens? And my broker was like, is there an agent that died? And I was like, no, no, I'm just hypothetical. I'm just asking. And he goes, well, you know, obviously we'd be sad and we would reach out to the clients and, you know, we would reach out to the clients and say, hey, uh, Johnny died. Um, so sorry. Very yeah. nice guy. Very nice guy. And let's close, We're that, close shit. that shit up. Uh, Mary, <laughs> Mary right here is going to take your transaction right to the finish line. Like you, you're in, in, in all you thought you were significant. You weren't, right, you were right. replaceable. And so right. when he said that, right. and I got confirmation from my broker, and by the way, there's nothing wrong that my broker said it was, that's just how it is. It's business, right? Nope. That's but what about is. the human's life in there? What about the person that like, right. what about their life? And that, and I think about this shit and I think about this with a lot of our clients who are lost or who just haven't found their path. And I thought about this in my own life. Like if I die tomorrow, like, does anybody give a fuck? Did I make any impact here? Did I do right. anything for this planet to move it? Right. And the answer back then, honestly, was no. I had made a shit ton of money. I donated a lot of money. I, you know, supported my economy. Yet, Ian didn't make impact in the way that Ian felt he should. And that really started to change me. And I, I speak to, to that point with a lot of people, like, are you okay leaving this planet knowing that you are replaceable and that you will be replaced? Like, could someone jump on this mic and interview you? Sure. Could somebody coach my, like fill in for me as a coach in my coaching business? Yes. However, that empathy and that understanding of another human being and the skill level and the talent that's not matched. It's not replaceable. It's just not, not like I do it. It totally is not. And I think, you know, especially as a young man, we kind of think in those macro views. And I think as I've gotten older and started to have some of the experiences that you had, my world has gotten infinitely smaller because uh, my my famous uh, line is, who's going to be there on your deathbed, yeah. right? Who's going to be around yeah. you, right? Those are the people that are going to matter. They matter right now. 
have the time with those people now because they're going to be the guys that are going to say, hey, man, Ian was a rock star. You know, I loved him. He ha we had these great days together. We didn't do much and we did so much at the same time. And I think we tend, especially as young people, to think, oh, man, we need possessions or we need experiences. And really, uh, my best times are with my son watching a ball game on the couch, holding each other's hand or talking about something silly that happened at school. Those, for me, are sure. the gold. That's that's where I like to live. And that's that's where changed my uh, changed my entire life in being in the funeral. Let me dig into that for a second. So there's a difference between the father provider there as the dad in the household uh, mentality or like action. And then there's the real quality time. So like, look, I, you know, you, you've been to LA, you know, LA, like there's just a lot of ego here and there's a lot of falseness and fakeness and inauthenticity here. And, and I think that in my opinion, from my own life and from others that I've coached and watched like big, big high level CEOs, like they think that the providing of the financial resource is basically, is, is it, it like, look at this house, like look at the cars they drive, look at the school they go to, like, that's me. Yet it's yeah. the time that you're talking about quality, authentic time yeah. that actually creates the legacy, you know, like it actually creates the Correct. legacy. Correct. And you can't, you can't pay no. for more time. No. Right. That's the, that's the greatest line, you know, from the funeral industry. The, the most valuable thing in the world is time. You you can't, if you want to buy it, you can't get it, right? It's just, and that's why the value of it is is infinite. And you have to be very smart, especially as you get older, um, how you use that time and what you use that time yeah. on. Yeah, it's, in, yeah. it's just, it's an interesting piece because you get to see, like, I'm pretty sure that you are not going to tell me a story of how you bring people back from the dead. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure you're not going to do that. Right. Definitely not. I'm a pragmatist. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And I'm also not going to tell you that a casket is the way to go. I'm the, I'm the cheapest guy and we should all be cheap and get cremated and not take up space and all that stuff. But uh, you think no, no, I'm a pragmatist. You think that's egotistical to take up to take up more space on the planet? Like like you already didn't take up enough space and kind of spend resources? Look, so you, I'm a little different because I was actually, uh, I, I'm trained as an environmental lawyer. So I do have a little bit sure. of conscious about the environment and mother earth. Um, and I, I do believe that it is finite and we have to be a little bit uh, more resourceful sure. in many, many ways. And I, I don't know how that, how we all do that, but Cremation for me is one of those things that we can. I mean, just think about it though. Like the body in this sort of fanfare and the casket and the open and the, the wake all day long. And then the gravesite and then the lowering in and the whole, like the fanfare, like, and I'm not, I'm not, the pageantry yeah, the pageantry, like I'm not right. negating it and I'm not saying it's not great. I, I've never really dealt with a major death in my, I mean, maybe I have some friends from in college it was really rough. However, like, do you, is it, is it, is it a necessity to keep that body there in that box in the ground or, or, or is what you're saying? I've never thought about it like that. I'm just like spitballing with you. Yeah. You know, it's funny because obviously I'm in the funeral industry and you think I would be pushing caskets, you know, because that's a, that's a, you know, 10, $12,000 boon for the sure. funeral home versus a $2,000 one. So it's definitely more profitable for me to push burial, but I just don't, I think each family is unique, sure. obviously, and needs some, sometimes people need that body yeah. present, especially if they're from that people coming in from out of town, they want to preserve the, the technical term is I want to preserve the proper memory picture yeah. for them. And I want to see them in that sleeping state. But, you know, again, as a pragmatist for me, I've had those memories with the people, my parents are both 82 knock on wood, you know, are still alive. I'm grateful. My in-laws, and it it wouldn't be as important to me because I know in my lifetime the experience and the memories that I have with them, there are here already, and I got them, so I'm good. Um, but it it is very important for some people and some religions. Sure, I totally get um, that. It's really, really a part of a writ of passage that don't don't sure, mess with that. Sure. You know, and we need that. Yeah, I just I just think about it in terms of like are you trying to hold on to memories that you didn't get or didn't experience, yeah. <laughs> you know, that final preservation of the final memory? 
Like, right. I'm not really sure if I want that to be my final sight of this person. I mean, and, and granted, right. I, I don't have experience with that. I'm just thinking out loud. It's almost like, right. you know, they, they're gone and now it's time to just, it's the, the goodbyes are there and present. And now let's like look through pictures yeah. and great memories, not like a body, you know, that's just, that's kind of freaky. And, yeah. and I remember my buddy, yeah. uh, Rob died when we were 25 of uh, like a stomach Whoa. aneurysm, like just his insides exploded. There was some, there was some stuff going on there, but like, I remember like just so upset seeing him because before we saw him in the casket, I was like, I was the fraternity historian. So I had all the pictures on my, you know, in my computer. And I, I went back up to my college town and we all met up there and we were just looking through pictures. And then the next day I saw his body and it, yeah. and it really messed me up yeah. and messed a lot of guys up. Cause it was like, shit, man, like three months ago, we were just playing volleyball together. Now he's dead. And, right. and like, the skin right. tone wasn't right. And like, and then like, it's just, no, no, it, it never was is. weird. Yeah. It was really jarring. And I remember sitting with yeah. his parents and I was like, this was really, this is really, uh, this is, this was an experience, like crazy experience. And maybe that also added to like, you got to live life because the kid's just yeah. gone. And, and like in our, in our mastermind yeah. group, I literally tell people like my cousin died a couple years ago. He, he would have been 39, like a couple weeks ago. And he died when he was like 35 or 36. And it's like, you're running on this treadmill together next to each other at the gym, right? Not literally. And just figuratively in life. And like, you see him on social and he's posting, going on these trips and you're like, oh, cool, man. Hey man, what's going on? Hey, you want to meet up for lunch? And then you turn around to grab a sip of water. And by the time you spin your head back, the treadmill's right. just rolling and he's gone. And that's, right. that's challenging. Right. Like, how do you, God, I have so many fucking questions for you. How oh, man. How do you yeah, but I mean, what is what is the legacy that you said it yeah. best for me? I'm trying to leave books that are about my my sons. They all are very intimate and have, you know, talk about my experience of growing with them and how much I enjoyed that. And to me, that's the legacy I want to leave. Look, we have challenging times with our children. I have a 15 year old now and it's very I mean, sometimes dad is like the antichrist, <laughs> you know, and I, I just walked in from work, you know, but, um, you know, I had. I believe that they they will come back to these stories, whether it's through my own mouth or through the books, and they will see truly see that you know how much dad loved them, and that's important. Yeah, to it's me. a phase. It's a yeah. phase. So, how do you? How do you? Obviously, you kind of led up to like buying a funeral home. Like, how, I don't care what this deal would be. I don't care what you sell me. I'm not buying a funeral home. I'm not, I don't want to see dead people. I don't, how did you do that? Like mentally? Yeah. So, you know, I, I had the mortician. So I, like you was thinking the exact same thing. I was thinking, I'm going to just sit in the back. I'm going to run this place. I know, you know, how to read a profit and loss sheet. And I know I'm pretty good at haggling for the best prices on overhead, keep my <laughs> yeah. overhead low and let, you know, that's, that's the way I'm thinking. But then, you know, it's a family run place. It's tiny, you know, there's, and invariably they get the call, hey, Chris, can you help us on a removal? And I'm like, what do you mean removal? And they're like, we got a body. I need you to come pick it up. And I'm like, okay, you know, and you got, and slowly, slowly I'm getting deeper and deeper. And then, hey, we have someone sick today. Can you meet with a family? And I'm like, oh man, really? And I'm like, yeah, it's easy. Don't worry. You're, you're a lawyer. And they kept saying, oh man, you know, you're a lawyer. You're fine. You're a smart guy. And so then you get deeper and deeper. And, you know, I, I talk about in the book, one of the, the, the seminal moments for me was going into the embalming room for the first time. And just by happenstance, there were two bodies, which are called in the, in the industry, you call it posted. So they had been to the coroner's office. They had the Y like you see on any CSI, only the embalmer had, you know, opened the Y's and the flanks were all open. And you literally, I literally came in, first of all, the smells, right? You could smell it coming down the hall. And then to see these two bodies like this and, and someone said, you know, my, my guy who was with me, the mortician said, you can be okay with this. I'm like, yeah, I'm cool. And I went in and it was an, uh, a black person and a white person next to each other. And I don't know why I didn't focus on the flaps of skin and the rib cage, like sitting up like this and all the innards for me, I gravitated to the, the feet 
And I looked at them and saw that they were Caucasian and African-American. And I'm like, the craziest, I don't know why, probably because I just had made a race relation movie back in the day. And I'm like, everyone needs to see this because that inside is the exact same as that inside. And all it is, is this, you know? And so for me, I think, like I said, I made a race relations drama where the the white actors played the black people and the black actors played the white people. And so that for me, more than the, the grotesqueness that, that a lay person would assume from this situation was more profound than anything. And I, I just, you know, again, I looked at the higher being and I said, man, I wish everyone could yeah. see this because that, that was so fascinating. That's crazy. Like, how do you not, I, and, and I've never heard it put like that. It, death is yeah. the equalizer. Everybody's equal in death, equalizer. no matter how much cash, equal. how fat, skinny, nothing. Ain't, ain't you are laying on a table <laughs> next to whoever and you don't have a choice. And it's, it's crazy to think about that, but that is, that is right. Like yeah. in that moment, yeah, there's no difference. It's just a human lay. It, it, it's a human laying there. And like, how do you not have nightmares about that? I mean, like I, I'm, 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 I, you know, I don't really know because that's funny you say that. I mean, many people would have said that to me and I don't know. And I was never like this science yeah. kid. I never had any kind of curiosity. I told you about my grandfather's experience and he had onset of Alzheimer's. And I do remember, you know, one Christmas Eve when he was up at my parents' house and he couldn't go to the bathroom properly and I had to help him. And I think I, I don't know. I think there was something natural that I gravitated once taking care in a couple of situations with my grandfather that I figured if I went through that, I, you know, this is going to be cake. I don't even know these people and I can do this because, you know, I lived it with my grandfather and maybe there's something there. I don't know. I, I had no special training, no special proclivity, nothing, but uh, also Again, you talk about it, right? The motivator. I thought constantly in the back of my mind, I have one baby at home. I have another one on the way and I don't have plan B, Fair. right? Fair. I, there was no, yeah. right? I was an attorney. Great. I felt confident, good, but there was no real plan B for me. Uh, my wife wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and raise our children. And that was a great motivating factor. That was like throttle sure. down. I don't sure. care. Just... I got to make money for the family. And, you know, a, a lot what you talked about, <laughs> probably very similar in, uh, you know, what's life. interesting. I'm glad you say that because now that brings new context into forcing yourself into shit that you're really uncomfortable with. I think, I think it also brings context to the, you know, I, I coach a lot of real estate agents and business owners and sales teams. And, you know, when people have that like phone phobia, like cold call phobia, and don't force themselves through that. Like, well, you could be Chris. You could have to force yourself through looking at dead bodies all day. And like, it's not right. just a dead body. Right. Like you saw gruesome. No. Like, and, and, and it's, yeah, and there's kind of like this beautifulness in death as well. But like when, when, when the body's open like that, it, it is jarring. And yeah. I've never seen that. I've seen it on CSI and it's fucking jarring there. Like, right. You don't, yeah. And it looks exactly the same, by the way. They yeah. do a great job. It, that's yeah. it. It's that frightening. Yeah. So, but the smells, are, well, the smells are what you, that, you don't get the other yes, You're not getting all the other sensory perceptions, like the coldness of the yeah, room, for sure. the sounds of right. like the quietness and the tools and the like, right. Did you ever think, do you ever, do you ever, <laughs> do you ever get nervous or scared that like somebody's going to come back to not, not the one that's wide open, but like a, a fresh one. No, you know, it's funny. We hear a lot of those stories on the yeah. news, right? You hear someone like went to the funeral home and the bag was slapping around. No, I have not had any <laughs> of those stories. Um, usually someone has pronounced them and those people yeah, are professionals. Yeah. So uh, I, I chalk it up to that, but I have not had those experiences. It's funny. I, I've been on a couple other podcasts, one with a medium and one with a wo- another woman. And they were, they asked me similar questions. They were almost disappointed like that. I hadn't had those stories. And I'm like, I'm not going to make one up for you. You know, (laughs) I'm just going to tell you my experience. And uh, I felt like I let them down. Like I was going to come in and say, I see dead people. No, 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 no. 
Technically, you do. No, Technically, you me. do see dead people all day long. Yeah, I, I do. You're right. You don't you see dead people <laughs> who come back alive. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So no, definitely not. I think yeah. one of the, I, I want you to to dive in with the time we have left. I want you to dive into um, the 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 twenty lessons, right? Like even just a couple of your favorites. One of the biggest one of the questions I have is when you're sitting with a family, does like, do they ever get into their disappointment or their, um, man, like this guy could have been so much more, or like he could have done more for the world or he could have stepped up more. Like, do you get into that stuff? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you know, they're, first of all, it's a huge responsibility because generally these people, especially if there was a, a love relationship, a strong love relationship, um, are very, very vulnerable. They probably haven't slept in days. They probably haven't eaten properly and drank properly. So they're coming in very vulnerable. So you have to be very careful. And, you know, my job is really not to probe, really, is just to sit back and listen. That's really the gift. And I, I think in many other industries, we could all learn that. That would be great. But uh, the ability to listen. But yes, you're. they come in and they, you know, Generally speaking, and again, this is a, a, a macro view, drugs, alcohol, uh, untapped potential are usually have been uh, compressed down by one of those things. And I think, you know, the stories of, you know, this kid was just the nicest, most charming athlete, great student. And, you know, there was a catalyst. There was something in their life that turned them. And you know, you said it uh, very eloquently in the beginning was about teaching people about failures, right? And it's how do we snap mm-hmm. back? And we have to understand. And again, it's hard when you're young because you're so vulnerable already. Your your emotions are at the, at the tips of your fingers. But understanding that failure is part of life for everyone. There is Jeff Bezos, you know, Elon Musk, whomever has gone through it and failure. It's what you do with that, right? Can you throttle down after the failure and say, hey, fuck it. Uh, I, yeah. Okay. Where's plan B? Where, what, how do I, how do I learn from this and zag? And what, what is the turn that I have to take? I'm learning that even to this day, I created a website that we thought was geared to the older people. And then boom, we did a 180 and said, it's for everyone, you know? So it's constantly in life. You have to understand that it's just that at a young age, it sometimes feels like this massive thing, right? And it's not, sure. it's freaking not, you know, you got plenty of time. Well, to it's, there's also like a, there's a time on task as well. So your first couple big failures, relationship failure or school failure or something like they weigh heavy because especially if you're not in sports right. and you don't understand failure, like time on task in terms of. You've had a hundred failures. So this one, it doesn't really hurt that much yet. If you've only had two big failures, this one hurts big time and you got to process through it. Right. But that's a parent's job, right? Right. But Ma- you, Malcolm Gladwell said it the best, right? What do we have to put in like 10,000 yeah, hours into whatever it is, right? That was, I mean, uh, again, it was a really popular book and it's right. I mean, it's, it makes yeah. sense and you have to put the time in and you've got to be on the, on the bottom rung to yeah. learn. That's, yeah. that's it. Yeah. Stick yeah. To it. I had, I had this yeah. conversation with someone last night. They're like, this guy's super successful. And I said, dude, you want to know what the hardest part of, of your, of your, of what you're asking me to help you with is? And he said, sure. And I go, it's going from a PhD classroom to the freshman classroom and being okay with it. Like literally that's it. You have to go from being a master level guy and expert at this to, I don't, I don't fucking get me. I don't understand me. Why am I not happy? I have all the stuff that I want. Why am I not happy? That's our big thing in the mental purpose organization and and the, and the, the other brands that we have is how do we help someone understand that the life they're living that they thought would make them happy? Like how do we help them transition into living the life that actually will make them happy? That's a big deal. What, what is there a is there a big takeaway from that? Do you find that there's a a common thread in what what generally makes people happier? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a couple. I think like if you if you look at the genesis of it, it's school and society and mom and dad 
kind of, and, and, and I'm talking like specifically for men, like high level men, like they have, they have gone down this road of success. They have the money, the cars, the house, the vacations, the family, yet they never, they never found that time or made that time for themselves to show themselves that they're valuable, that they're worth it, that they mean something, that they love themselves. Like they never found that self-actualization. It came from the external. And then what happens is some guys hit it at 30. I mean, I hit it at 35. Some guys hit it at 65. Like, oh my God, I've been running on this treadmill. Like I truly can be happy. I just don't know how. Like my friend's really happy inside and out. And what we're really talking about is the difference between the financial freedom that people seek and the internal freedom that people really want. You're not going to get it from money. You're going to get it from, from actually stop stepping back and saying like, I'm going to give a fuck about me today. I'm going to be selfish as shit today, not in detriment to your family or your health or anything, but like, I'm going to take care of me today. I'm going to go, I'm going to go do this because I want to, because it's for me and it means something to me. And I'm going to teach myself that I matter to me. That's huge. And so when guys can shift that, that Happiness, joy, fulfillment is a result of that pivot of mindset and belief patterns that they're actually worth spending time on or that they're valuable enough without their money or their success or their job title that they're actually worth it as a human. You have, you will be mind blown how many guys, I mean, 95% of the people, men and women that come to us are in that position where they are. They're having, you know, a a measurement of success, yet they're measuring their success by the money only. And it's dangerous. It's really freaking dangerous, super dangerous. So that's why it's kind of like you, we basically say like, we'll help you quit the life you thought would make you happy to start living the life that actually does, which is self-empowerment. There's self-empowerment and they're all over the place. It's big. Yeah. It's really big. Yeah. Huge. Huge. So do you... When you deal with a family, do people come back like maybe a year later or something? Or like, do you ever catch up with somebody or meet somebody, you know, like time later? And then- Yeah, I tell a story in the book, which was it was heartbreaking about a woman who lost her daughter uh, to a car accident. And it's kind of a funny, freaky story. It was kind of a weekend at Bernie's. She asked if they could take her from the funeral home and drive around with a couple of friends to some of her haunts. And that actually happened. It's legal. Wait, the body uh, had to check with the body. How do you, yeah. How do you do around that? to all the haunts where they used to drink beers, brought her back, um, said, can I spend some couple hours with her? And I said, yeah, I'm going to go do some work in the back. We prepared her and placed her and the mom sat in the room with her. And then I said, you know, I'm going home. Um, and I looked up, she looked up at me. She goes, Oh, it's time to go. And I said, you're not ready, are you? And she said, no. And I, I gave her the key to the funeral home. And I said, I'll be back in the morning to say as long as you want, just throw it in the you know mailbox. I came back in the morning. She's yeah. still there. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, she, uh, she got up and she, uh, she gave me a hug, like one of the, like one of those hugs where you, really? you know what it's about. Yeah. Right. And, uh, she said, thank you. Thank you so much. And, uh, she left. And I tell the story that I, a year later, I'm in the grocery store buying a sandwich for lunch and I saw her and like an idiot or a nice person, depending on what you'd say, I see her and I went up to her. She looks up and she sees me, but doesn't know who I am. And I walk up and I say, Hey, I'm Chris from the funeral home. And her face just went, whoa, like. She was this smiling woman, seeing a, a handsome guy coming toward her and then boom, white, went white. And I was like, fuck, you know, I, I brought her yeah. back. I said, I was so pissed at myself because I, I was saying she was probably at that year mark where she was just yeah. healing, you know, cause that's a typical grief, grief mode. And I brought her fucking back and I, it wrecked me. It absolutely wrecked me. And I, I gave her a hug and, uh, and she said, thank you. Thank you so much for all you did and, and walked away. But I knew I was more pissed at myself than feeling like my yeah. oats, you know? And I was just like, I knew that I had brought her that memory back when she was just about there. And that was devastating. 
So I, I don't say hi too much anymore, Ian, to people in the stores. Uh, just put my head down and walk <laughs> unless I'm confronted. How do, you, how do you not internalize that pain, man? Like, no, yeah. I'm saying not, not just with that one. Like, yeah. you have the compound effect. Yeah. It's pain every right. day. Like, I, people ask me this and they'll say, like, you get really fucking deep with, with people and talk about mom and dad traumas and school and, and like the bullshit that happened when you're a kid, when you're a kid. And like, how do you not internalize that? Well, I think it's a cakewalk for me not to internalize that. However, I have my systems to, to be able to be present and there with them yet not soak it in. I mean, dude, you're dealing with the most emotional time of people's life how are you right. not like on zoloft at like an at like an nth degree prescription right, right. and i'm no. not but i'll be honest with you so i the that was the sort of the first seven years of my life here and doing those stories and i i at, at when i started writing the book i knew that i probably couldn't do this for my life and that's why you made the very uh learned uh note that you saw funeral home owner i'm more now the owner uh and uh people run my, yeah. my places um because i didn't think i could do that i i i was that guy who did that i i got too emotional I cared about people too much. And um, that's what they say about funeral directors. You'll either become a, start drinking at 10.30 in the morning or you'll leave at five and you'll go be with your family. And I chose the latter because I knew it would, it would wreck me. I knew it would wreck me as a human. What about the, you know, I, I feel like there's also the, the, the robotic side where you like death doesn't scare you. You don't want well, that's what I'm that, saying. Though. Like there's, there's that you other extreme of that. like, yeah. I, I met a, I, I yeah. sold a house for a guy. Um, he lost, he lost his job in like the, I think it's like the, in like the late seventies. And one of his friends was like, well, we're looking for a, a, a mortician, I guess. And an embalmer. And the guy was like, well, I got a family. I need to make some money. So I'll, I'll go do it. And like, he had this 45 year career, just, just, Go from 2018, 45 years back, and he had just retired. And um, and man, the conversations with and he was in the robotic phase, like their transactions yeah. now. Yeah. And I, I I was picking his yeah. brain about stuff. I mean, the guy chain smoked cigarettes like they were going out of style. And I remember like asking him questions because I was curious. And I said, you know, what's the worst experience? And I also want to ask you that, like, what's the worst? What is the most um, I don't want to say worst. What's, what's an experience that like rattles you still, or like makes you kind of go, Oh, I got I got to keep that out. You know? Yeah. So I was, uh, very early on, uh, I was told to go up to the uh, county coroner's office in a remote County. And I went up there and, uh, the coroner came and he looked at me and I, he must, I must have had green all <laughs> over my face. Cause he's like, you sure you're here? Right. And I'm like, yeah, I'm here. I'm picking up this guy. And he's like, you're really sure about this? And I'm like, yeah. And I said, okay. Uh, I said, anything I should know? <laughs> Cause I kind of reading them. And he's like, he's a jumper. And I said, what? Uh, he was a jumper. And I said, oh, well there was this famous bridge up that was notorious for people jumping sure. off of and uh, you know, to commit suicide. And this was one of those kids. And he said, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, this is what's going to go down. And he explained it to me and he said, we're going to pick them up and it's going to be liquefied. You're going to, you know, you're going to, it's going to feel like a, a ocean in there because there's not much left. And, you know, um, the bones, they got what they could. And it's kind of like, it's been here a while. So, and I remember picking them up and that feeling that was one I'll never, ever forget yes. because it was, it, you know, it didn't yeah. feel human. And uh, that was traumatic. But again, I think you just, for me, I went home and I just hugged a little tighter yeah. on my son. And, yeah. You know, rubbed his head a little longer when we were tucking him in. And uh, I think you're, you're changed sure. forever. But uh, I attribute the, the, what I did with it was just kind of make it more always about my children and, uh, I, I took it like the appreciation for life, which is what yeah. you said. You just have like, 
you know, people talk to me and I'm like, come on, bro. <laughs> you don't know anything. <laughs> I might be a good coach. I might be a good coach because I'd be like, come on, that's bro. Nothing. You see what I see? So, <laughs> Ain't nothing. So maybe that's like a massive appreciation and gratitude you have because you see things yeah. that the rest of the world like avoids right. and shies away from. And right. and you have a different context and appreciation and lens that you look through the world th- or you look upon the world through that, I mean, I do, I, I, I have, uh, I, I heard about somebody passing away and like, I, I feel like I hug my kids tighter. And like, I, I remember one day I, I was reading my son this book and, um, he was, it was before he was two. And, um, and I remember like, he just, like, I got really present, like really present for this like moment. And he hugged me tighter. I was like, okay, let's like every, every time I put him in bed, I'm like, cool. Let's like, he need just turned too. I was like, let's fluff your pillow up and let's, right. which blanket do you want? I'll have like right. blankets on the side of his bed and he'll pick a blanket. And like, I said to him, all right, Pricey, do you want, uh, uh, like, let's go fluff your pillow. And he just hugged me tighter and I, I fucking lost it. Mm. Like I started crying right. my eyes out because right, like I was so connected with this little human being. And I it was, yeah. I was like, I never yeah. want this fucking moment to end. I never want this. I don't want it presence to end. end. I had one of those with my middle son and we, we, we do tuck-ins at our house, especially when they were younger, (laughs) obviously not anymore, but, uh, which I miss. Um, And we would talk about their day, like most, you know, moms or dads do. And he started asking questions about what I do and, um, you know, and then asking about, you know, well, what happens when you die and, you know, we go to, you know, we believe that you go to heaven and it's a beautiful, you know, I get, went the whole story with him and, uh, you know, he said something to the effect, like, you know, what's gonna, when you die, dad, I, I'll be, I'm going to be really sad, but what happens when I die? How am I going to find you? Right. And that just, (laughs) that just destroyed me. Right. Cause I'm sitting there and I'm trying to be brave and I'm trying to answer the question, right? Because this is what an eight-year-old, six-year-old, something like that. And how am I going to find you in heaven? You know? And I said, Oh, well, I'll be there. I'll find you. We find each other. Don't worry. And then I went into my wife and I, you know, crying my eyes out. And she's like, what the heck's going on? You're just talking them in. What happened, young man? <laughs> Hold it together. <laughs> but, you know, those are, you know, it sounds like it was like yeah. that once in a lifetime conversation. And I memorialized that in the book yeah. because that was as clear as day to me. And it is still today. Um, and it's what, you know, 10 sure. years later. You know, it's, that's, it's interesting you say that there's a... One, I'm glad you didn't tell that story in the beginning, or I think I'd be a fucking mess right now. <laughs> like you got so much emotion up in me. Um, there's a there's a song by a country artist named Luke Combs, and it's like there's two songs that really get me. One of them is Trace Adkin. Was it the one about that tells the dad the dad's yeah. going to come back? I oh, I heard that. It's brilliant. I lost it. It came, and Luke's such a great performer. It came on in the car once and my wife looks over. She goes, are you okay? And I was like, fucking tears streaming down. And there's another, it's called, um, even though I'm leaving. And and in the song, it's like, I I cannot repeat the words because I will start crying. Like it it, it just, it's the same thing you just said. Like, Jesus Christ, I don't know if I can do this. How am I going to find you, dad? Like, fucks me up man right 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 it's crazy and you know i don't know but that's a good stuff you know that i ian that's that's why you're doing what you're doing and and i think it's really important especially like men like guys like us to share those stories because you know heretofore our society is like you know we gotta be the he-man and and like you said, be the provider and do this and that. And, you know, that's just a bunch of bunk, man. No. That's just marketing that <laughs> right. someone sold us. And right. That's, that's not what we need. So here's the here's the last song, and I want to get your opinion, and then, and then let's wrap it. So the other song is Trace Adkins, You're Going to Miss This. I don't know if you've, if you've ever heard it. Audience, go Google it. If you have children, you yeah. need to hear this song. It made a very, very strong impact on me. It's an older song. 
And it basically goes through these three scenarios where let's just say there's like a, there's a plumber that comes to the house and the, and the girl, you know, she's, it starts when the girl is young and her dad's running around and then the girl has kids and the, and she says to the plumber, I'm so sorry. Like they're they're My kids are kind of a pain in the ass. Like I'm paraphrasing. And the, and the, and the plumber says, don't worry about it. Like I got a, I got a kid of my own. He's 30. And I'm going to tell you right now, savor these moments because you're going to miss it when it's gone. And that's right. the whole just, just of the song. And it will, it'll mess you right. up. Either that, like you'll yeah. register with it and realize um, that you're on track or you will realize that you are not being or showing gratitude yeah, the in the moments that really matter, which aren't fanfare, right? They don't oh, come with sparklers and fireworks and champagne bottles popping there. You have to be present enough to know those moments and you deal with people that don't yeah. get that opportunity anymore. And that's hard. That's really hard. What's your, what's your, what's your take on the, I, I, I say this a lot to our groups, like do it now when that season of your life is over, it's over. Like, like my daughter's six. I know for a fact that I got to savor the flavor with bubble bath time with her and my son, right? My daughter's six, son's two, because there will be a season when that ends and I'm not going into a 13 year old's bathroom going, no, sweetheart, I didn't do it enough when you were a kid. I was distant right. and, and thinking that my right. job was most important. Right. Uh, I bought bubble bath. And she's like, what are you talking about? Right. You crazy person. Yeah. You freak right. out of here. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, there is. And the, you know, I've gone through it with, you know, two of my three sons and one is just starting to turn 13 and it's getting less and less <laughs> huggy with his dad. Right. And so, yeah, no, it's, it's a very fleeting time, but you know, the yeah. best. Yeah. The best. I agree. So yeah. man, we had a we had a fun time today. <laughs> yeah, we all, oh man, we did. Yeah, awesome. I really appreciate you being on here. We'll do it again sometime. I, you know, I would really like to read your book and then have you back on. Yeah, yeah, I'd yeah. love it. I'd love it. I'll send okay. them to you. I'll get a give you a, a yeah, couple I'd copies. It. Yeah, I, I, I'd like to give it out to some of our our uh, mental purpose members too. I think it's gonna be really beneficial. Um, Chris, awesome. thanks for being here, man. Thanks for your lessons. Thanks for what you're doing and and the clarity you have and and the and not worrying about what people thought about. You went to law school and got a law degree and you passed the bar, yet yeah. you went into something else. <laughs> like the lessons today are from your experiences, not as a lawyer. You know what I mean? And and you you helped the world today on this program. You know.